It was good to be, like I said, with you all again. That might be surprising to some of you because you're like, I've never seen you before in my life. Um, I was here last summer to preach during Pastor Steve vacation twice. We went through the Gospel of John a little bit. And uh, yeah, now we're here again. When I came last time, my wife was pregnant with our son, and now you will see that he is here. Uh, and he is 10 months old and has lots of red hair and lots of personality. So he's a lot of, he's a lot of fun. Um, he's a little bit of a Pentecostal too. You might hear him screaming during the, <laughs> during the, during the sermon. So he gets into it. Um, yeah, it's good to be with you all again. Uh, just a refresher so you know who I am. Uh, my family and I are from the area. I grew up down in Benson, Arizona, which is east of here. Uh, went to the U of A and, uh, Westminster Seminary, California. And now I'm hopefully, if the Lord wills, seeking to plant an Anglican church in Tucson uh, with the Diocese of the Rocky Mountains. And so uh, if you would keep us in prayer, keep my ordination process in prayer, that the Lord would both equip me for the work and equip my heart uh, for the calling of being a minister. Uh, I don't know, do you stand when you read the sermon text? Why not? Let's do it, you know? A little change. Steve is thousands of miles away. He can't do anything about, about standing. So he may be watching. So if he, if, if he hears anything negative about the Red Sox, you'll, you'll know. Um, let's, let's read the word of the Lord. Uh, Romans 5, 1 through 11 is our primary text today. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Let me pray real quick. O Lord, from whom all good proceeds, grant us the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may always think those things that are good, and by your merciful guidance may accomplish the same. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, I don't need to ask you to imagine uh, what it is like to live in troubled times, uh, as if that is just a theory. 
a global pandemic with talk of a second wave, particularly hitting our state, massive unemployment, civil unrest, and protests in response to un- injustice. Uh, and just so you know, it's only June. And we also have a wildfire burning in our backyard. Uh, you know, and also, by the way, uh, the Diamondbacks were supposed to be pretty good this year, and we don't have any baseball. So the, the suffering really does range. Uh, but all this has been occurring while the church has celebrated Easter, uh, the ascension of Christ, Pentecost, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And most of this has all occurred while we have been at home, away from each other, away from God's gifts to us in his means of grace. If there has ever been a time in which we need a healing and hope-filled kingdom, it is now. And this is my hope and prayer for all of us today, that we would experience this kingdom of grace, that our Lord Jesus, who is also called the great physician, because he calls the sick, would diagnose our sin, our sickness, and our suffering by his law, though it be uncomfortable and even frightening, and that he would resurrect us up And he would heal us with his gospel. You see, this King Jesus reigns not by the sword that he might destroy, but he reigns by his grace. And as the King, he defeats our sin, which is why the main idea, the way way I want to sum up what our main point today is actually with a verse from Romans 6, verse 14 which says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So that's the main idea. And we'll begin with our first point, the assaults and rebellion of sin. You see, we find ourselves in the midst of sin and suffering. This is the plight that our passage deals with, as well as the whole Bible. James 3.2 says that for we all stumble in many ways. It could just as rightly say that we all suffer in many ways. In our Old Testament and gospel readings for today, I think there are three things, three forms of suffering that we're particularly experiencing right now in our world. So we'll cover them. First, there is the suffering of sickness. COVID-19 has ravaged us both in terms of health and economics. While time will give us a clearer picture of how we should have responded, what the severity was, and other questions that are on all of our minds, the reality remains that, as of yesterday, close to 420,000 people have died around the world. That's 420 people, 420,000 people who are made in the image of God. And some of you might know someone who has died or been seriously affected by this. And even if you haven't experienced these health effects, you have probably felt the economic squeeze. And if you've made it through all that, there is still just the minor frustrations and stress and anxiety uh, that we all experience. Did I mention that there's no baseball? All these things are happening. And you see, in our gospel reading... Uh, we see these, this form of suffering is addressed. 
This is because as the disciples are sent out in Matthew 9, verse 35, notice that they are sent to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Furthermore, in chapter 10, verse 8, they are commanded to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, and to cast out demons. This is the apostolic ministry. And I can't help but think of the difficulty of dying from COVID-19, usually alone and isolated. Friends, this is a modern-day leprosy that you cannot see. And you see, because of the physical side of suffering is mentioned in this passage, we can know that God cares about it. We can know that even though we are not guaranteed physical healing in this life, We are promised that he will make it ultimately work for our good. And that while or when the King Jesus returns to fully bring about his kingdom, we have this promise that he will bring about full healing from sickness. And we even read in Revelation 21.4 that when he comes, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the gospel brings our ultimate healing. Gospel proclamation and healing are always connected with each other. And so we know that one day he will make all of this right. And this leads to our second form of suffering that we are seeing today. This is the suffering of the oppressed. In Exodus 19, as Israel is coming to Mount Sinai for the giving of the Ten Commandments and the covenant with Moses, we see in Exodus 19 through 4 that what comes in the giving of the covenant is predicated on the salvation that God has previously worked for his people. We read this, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In Exodus 20, verse 2, we further see what the Lord did. When he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, this is the first form of suffering the people of God have experienced, and it's oppression. The oppression of the Egyptians is the prominent example. But we also see in Scripture that sin itself is an oppressor. We see this in John 8:34 when Jesus says this, truly truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Furthermore, Jesus speaks of everyone here to remind us that this slavery is not just limited to Israel. It is not just about their own recounting of sin and failure, but it is true of you and me. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 3, 9, and 10. Furthermore, when we read in the scripture that the physical and emotional and verbal oppression of ancient Egyptians are not just condemned as the enemy of God, it goes further. 
all forms of oppression, God opposes. That's why Psalm 103, verse 6, says that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You know, he does this in a special way for his covenant people. He defeats their sin and he delivers them. And he promises that he will protect them and he will one day make all things right on their behalf. But friends, in the covenant made with Noah, this covenant that the Lord would preserve the earth enough for when Jesus comes back, he has also promised a common grace righteousness. That is a civil protection of this world. And so what he does for all people is works a civil righteousness on their behalf because they are made in the image of God. I knew something funny was happening. So I was like, this, yeah, I was like, I was like, this part of the sermon's not funny. Um, but uh, quite the opposite. Um, yeah, but it's, it's true for everyone that God, in preserving his world, in restraining sin so that it doesn't overtake us like before the days of Noah, he works a civil righteousness. And he does this for all who are oppressed, whether they are Christians or not. So he does this uh, for defectors of North Korea. He does this for Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. He does this for the unborn in Western countries. And yes, he does this for African Americans who have experienced hundreds of years of oppression before the Civil Rights Act, which was only enacted 56 years ago. And he does this in the evil fruit that still comes from those times today. And this leads to my third form of suffering that we experience. You see, in Exodus 19.6, we see that the purpose of God for Israel in keeping the Mosaic Covenant was this. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what his goal was. And you see, part of this priesthood would have included being a good neighbor to the nations around them, so that the nations around Israel would come to know and to fear Yahweh. That was his goal. But we see what happened instead in the prophets. In Ezekiel 9.9, we read this about Israel. Rather than being a good neighbor, this is what happened. The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. You see, friends, in the church today, we currently have a problem of not being a very good neighbor. You see, we have a problem with being a good neighbor to those who are in the world, both other Christians and non-Christians alike who are different from us. You see, we so often struggle to listen to the plight of our neighbors in need. We so often struggle to listen to what their concerns are, to listen to the fears that they have, the suffering they experience, because they do not completely think like us or act like us or have the values that we have. We are often like the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus you know, gives them the command that they should love their neighbor as themselves, and we as Christians often respond as the lawyer did when it says this in Luke 10.29, But he, 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Recently, I've seen a lot of Christians say that, in light of recent protests, that systemic racism is impossible, and therefore there is no legitimacy to what has been happening. Yet we, as Reformed Christians, have such a view of sin that we know it is never limited to just individuals, but it also inflects or infects the institutions in which they inhabit. We know this intuitively with other evils. We know this, uh, you know, with abortion, for example. We know that abortion is not just an individual problem, but it is the responsibility of a nation to care for the unborn, to care for the voiceless. And yet we struggle with taking that ethic into all areas of life, to all Ten Commandments that we have been given as the people of God. Herman Bovink, one of the Mount Rushmore figures of the Reformed faith, so you know I'm not making this up, uh, said this about corporate and systematic sin. Listen to these words. It helps us think about our situation today. Sin, therefore, though it is indeed always essentially the same, manifests itself in different ways and forms in different persons, families, classes, and nations, and in different states and times. There are family sins, societal sins, national sins in every area of life. We are all subject to the influence of bad habits and sinful examples of the zeitgeist and public opinion. Aside from what we call original sin, there is also corporate guilt and the corporate action of sin. He goes on to argue that the fruit of this sin is this, a stream of spiritual and physical misery in individual persons, families, generations, and nations, in state, church, society, science, and arts, has its origin in sin. Remove it, and as everyone agrees, there is almost no suffering left. That's from his Reform Dogmatics, Volume 3, on page 175 and 179. Friends, in other words, what Bavink is getting is that is that the myriad forms of sin uh, cover all areas of life. Sin, because of Adam, is the root problem, and it takes on so many expressions, and it is not so easily exercised out of our lives by a simple law being enacted or by simple changes. It runs deep, and it runs long. And the history of Israel is meant to reflect that, both for them and for us as the people of God. It may be hard, um, or we often can believe that sin such as racism is not a corporate problem. But I want to suggest to you humbly today that to believe that these sins are not a corporate problem is to actually give in to the very rugged individualism that we as the church have so long denounced. To say that because I myself am not a racist and therefore racism doesn't still exist is actually the fruit of postmodern individualism 
not the biblical doctrine of sin. We are often shocked to learn our, the biblical and theological understanding of something like sin. And the sad irony is that those who refuse to be a good neighbor and use their sound theology, their views, or their morals to not be a good neighbor in this world actually reveal that our theology, our morals, and our views are not as sound as we once boasted. We need to heed the warning of 1 Corinthians 10.12 that says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So what are we to do? What hope do we have if all of our suffering is true? This leads to my second point. We see the kingly victory in our suffering. Verse 2 of Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That might surprise you. I know it surprises me when I think of my place and I think of the suffering that I experience and the suffering that I partake in and cause others, whether it's my own family or broader strands. This is the word that I need to hear, but this is the word that also surprises me. You see, because this is how the King Jesus deals with us sinners in the midst of our suffering. He gives us this promise of justification and therefore peace with God. You see, in verse 2, when it says, Though through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Those two verbs there, the obtained and the standing, um, in the Greek, they're in the perfect. And I just want to warn you, I wasn't the best at Greek, so don't be too impressed by this. It's pretty basic stuff. Um, just look at my transcripts from seminary. But uh, when it's in the perfect in this context, that means that it is a completed action with present results, which means this for you, that your access to God by faith is forever secure that your standing in grace is forever secure, and therefore your rejoicing in hope of the glory of God is forever secure. And then in verses 3 through 4, we have this ultimate twist. We hear this list of amazing truths in our salvation. We hear that we have been justified by faith. We hear that we have peace with God, that we have access by faith, that we stand in grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And right when you are about to leap out of your seat, uh, you think it can't get any better. You hear Paul say, not only that, uh, cue the OxyClean commercial with Billy Mays, you know, saying, but wait, there's more. Uh, you can't, this deal gets better. Uh, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What does this mean? That may not be what we expected to read. You see, Paul is teaching us here that God's kingly victory does not deliver us out of our sufferings, but it delivers us in our sufferings, in the midst of our sufferings. How can this be? You see, this is not because suffering is inherently something that leads to endurance, character, and hope. On the contrary, you and I both know people who go through the ringer of suffering, and they come out of it full of despair, 
full of fear, bitterness, distrust, rage, and the like. So how can we know that that's not ultimately going to be us? Because we do feel those things in the midst of suffering. Well, this is the difference. You see, it's not that there's an inherent value in suffering. It's not as if asceticism inherently leads to godliness. But we see what God does in the midst of suffering. We see how he works, and we see it in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, when he says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, in the midst of our suffering, this is when we look to and we finally begin to find the sufficient grace of Jesus. You see, suffering produces endurance and character and hope because it is in this context in which we in faith finally stop looking to ourselves, looking to our own supposed righteousness, looking to our own self-sufficiency, and begin to look to the power, the love, and the grace of Jesus the King. You see, when this happens, hope springs forth. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, this Holy Spirit that is given, to, is given to us, as John 3.34 says, without measure. Hope does not disappoint because hope cannot run out. Hope cannot end. You cannot make use of it all the way. And because it cannot end, it, uh, it comes back to the fact that we have been justified. Or the reason that it cannot end is because we have been justified. And this justification is the basis of our inheritance of the Spirit, and of this hope that we have. And this leads to our third point, the much more nature of the kingdom of God. You see, Paul takes us even deeper into our own sin and suffering. He speaks of our weakness and helplessness to be good in verses 6 through 8. And I want you to notice the path that the apostle takes us on. He continually raises the stakes of our suffering, of our sin, yours and mine, because he wants to show us the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. A pastor once showed me an illustration that you may be familiar with uh, to explain the Christian life. He said, when you begin the Christian life, you are here, and you see that God's holiness goes up and that your sinfulness goes down. And when you first believe, you see that the cross is the bridge in between the two places. But you see, as you go through time, as you grow as a Christian, you become more and more aware of the angle and trajectory of God's holiness and how it goes up and up and up. 
but you also become aware of your sinfulness and how you seem to be going this way, that you are actually much worse off than you ever thought you could be, that you are actually much more sinful than you ever thought possible. But that doesn't lead to despair because there's a bridge in the middle, and that's the cross. And what happens to the cross during that whole time? Well, it's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Meaning that the cross is becoming more and more central to your life. You're realizing more and more how much you need it and how sufficient its grace is for you. That is the Christian life. You see, that is what God is doing in this text. He is taking you deeper and deeper into the realization of your own sin your own suffering, but he is not leaving you there. He is raising you from the dead with Jesus Christ, all by his grace. Verse 9 and 10 says, Now that we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see this much more of the kingdom of God. We see uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16, It tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead to new life and now lives and reigns because he was, as the passage says, justified in the Spirit. You see, in the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, his righteousness as the true and second Adam is confirmed. His victory over sin and death and the curse of the law is proven. And you see, Not only that, but his resurrection also becomes our resurrection. And his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And so because of that, Jesus is confirmed as the firstborn son. He has won the inheritance. And now because we are justified, because we have his righteousness, we too are now co-heirs with him. We inherit this kingdom of God as a gift. And all of our salvation, all of our life, is lived by faith in his grace. So in conclusion, because of the gospel of this kingdom, we then rejoice in God, as verse 11 says. We began rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, and now we rejoice again through God. So in the middle... In between the times, as we put it, as we live this life, how do we rejoice in our sufferings? How can we know that God is at work in a pandemic, in times of unrest, uh, even violence and oppression, uh, and when we have failed to be a good neighbor? It's because God is continually holding on to you. He is continually nurturing you by his grace through his word and his sacraments. He is continually being your God for you. He is continually making all things new in your life in the midst of suffering. And he is continually making that kingdom of grace bear on your life in beautiful and unexpected ways, even though most of the time you don't see it. That is what he is doing. He is making known the riches of his grace, as Ephesians 2.7 says. And how do you know, then? How do you know this grace and hope of glory is yours? Well, simply by his promise to you. 
For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word which we do not deserve and we have not merited, and yet you have condescended to meet us in our sin. You, through your word, have diagnosed us with your law, but Lord, you have not done that to leave us there. You have not done that to leave us in the roadside, Jesus, dying, bloodied, and bruised. Because you are actually the good Samaritan. You are the one who comes by and binds us up. You, Jesus, are the one who comes and gives us your grace. You are the one who comes to each of us and declares that our sins are forgiven, that we have a place in the kingdom, that we inherit all things by grace through faith in you. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom in this world, knowing that we uh, are not going to be of one mind in all things, but we pray that we'd be of one heart in charity. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to go out and to serve and love our neighbors. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to make your gospel shine most brightly in our lives than anything else, that the love and the grace that you have shown to us in your gospel would be the thing that captivates our hearts, comforts our souls, and frees us to live in gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.